If we haven't met, my name is JD. I get to be the pastor of Christ Church Charlestown. I'm glad you're here. If you didn't get your iced coffee and need to make a quick iced coffee run out into the lobby, you certainly can. I told the team this morning, if it gets any warmer on Sunday mornings, we'll just bypass the iced coffee and have Richie slush outside for all the people who love that. Um, that certainly would not make me sad one bit. I want to tell you on Sundays, like, especially, good grief, the air conditioner is running. They'll make that go away. Um, on these warmer summer Sundays, always feel free to dress as comfortably as you want. Like, it's not going to offend me in any way if you even come in with a tank top on. Just, uh, just make sure you did your push-ups and your curls before you come in, guys, if you go that route. So it's good to see you. We're in the middle of a series called Heavy Lifting. And the, the general sort of idea of this series is that we can do heavy lifting as Christians in discipleship because Jesus has done the heavy lifting in salvation. Everything that we need uh, to follow Christ well, if we are uh, followers of Jesus, he has given us by his death and resurrection, by the power of his Holy Spirit living in us, and also uh, by the word of God and the people of God. And so... You know, I think, a lot of, I think a lot of times, like, the Lord has literally given us all the power in the universe, and we run around feeling very um, ill-equipped, and, like, we don't use all the resources that he's made available to us. And, uh, and so this series has been a little bit tougher, and last week we started a, a three-week sort of series within the series on idols and idolatry and all of that, and, uh, and last week several of you were like, man, that, that hit a little different, um, and so we got kind of... We dug in a little bit last week. We're going to dig in a little bit more today. I want to tell you, before you get going, like we did last week, I want to tell you about three crazy religions that I came across this week. I found the Aetherius Society. The Aetherius Society is part Hindu, Hinduism, it's part Buddhism, it's part um, Judaism, it's part Christianity, and it's part ufology, or uh, the study, the science uh, of UFOs. So that's a, that's a fun mix of faiths right there together. Their goal, the goal of this religion is to prevent the annihilation of hum- humanity. And so they've apparently prevented a lot of disasters. You may not have known, but we have them to thank. They prevented a lot of disasters uh, through prayer and by what they call their spiritual energy batteries. You can't make this stuff up. I promise you that is how they do it. And they're waiting for what's called the next master, who's a sort of mega Jesus who's coming on a UFO and, um, and like possessing magic to save humanity. This is a real group of people who believe something in this earth. The second one I'll tell you about is Jediism. Um, yep, it's those Jedis. Anybody in here a big Star Wars fan? A few of you, all right. Man, I wish Miguel were here today. This would be the religion that he might default to if he ever tapped out on following Jesus. Uh, you know the whole like Star Wars Jedi stuff of like, you know, light side and dark side and the force. Uh, Jediism has no central organization to it as a religion. However, they do have a temple of the Jedi order uh, that's in Texas, by the way, because all the crazy religions start in America. I had a seminary professor one time who said, any religion that started in America, just run as fast and as far as you can from it. So of course it's in Texas. And while they don't have like a 501c3, so you can't give your tithes and offerings this week to Jediism, they do have a code of 16 teachings of the Jedi. 
The third one that I found this week, and this might be my, one of my favorites, is called the Prince Philip Movement or the PPM. It's from a Vanuatu legend. And the only reason I know what Vanuatu is is because of Survivor. There are a few seasons of Survivor that were on this island in the South Pacific. There's a, there's a region on Vanuatu where the people of that part of the island believed that there was a son of an earth spirit who traveled across the sea to marry a powerful woman and would one day return. After seeing when Queen Elizabeth, after seeing how uh, everybody responded to Queen Elizabeth and her husband Philip visiting Vanuatu, they thought that this must be the returning son. And so they are worshipers of the late great Prince Philip of uh, the United Kingdom. And so they actually celebrate his birthday, June 10th, as their high and holy day. And I haven't gotten an update on how they have practiced their faith since he passed away. Um, These things are like laughable. You know, some of them are laughable and they can be kind of ridiculous. But then if we kind of turn in on our hearts, we can see that we're not actually that much different on some of this stuff. Like if we're not careful, I don't think that um, most of you in here are worshiping something crazy. I would say that following Christ is actually very rational and a very wisely informed decision that's not just something rooted in our minds, but also something rooted in our hearts. We've, we're staking our lives and our destinies on Christ and the gospel. But what is kind of laughable and ridiculous, maybe even more ridiculous than some of these, is to think about, um, do I add other stuff onto this? Or are there parts of following Jesus that I've kind of just turned into magic? Or, um, or formulas. There was a time Natalie and a group of women in the church are reading through the Bible right now and they were going through Job the other day and we were talking about how the book of Job was essentially written to say that God is bigger than all of our formulas. But a lot of my faith was spent thinking, oh, if I'm a good person, if I love God, if I obey God, then God is bound to do blank. And the truth is that is a, as ridiculous of an idea as the idea of following the Jedi way or of worshiping Prince Philip. Because the truth is, if God is God, then he doesn't have to do any single thing. Now, he does choose to bless us, but he's not bound, actually, to always bless us and always make life easier for us. That was a, like a day where my faith got shook when I began to realize that. And I realized that I had added other stuff to Jesus and to the gospel. And so do we mix in following Christ and following other stuff as well? This week, uh, Renee and our church sent me a passage. He was like, great message Sunday. And reading this week, he was like, I came across Isaiah 44. And I want you to turn your Bibles today, if you will, to Isaiah 44. I want to show you the passage that Renee actually pointed me to. This, this week. It's a great passage about idols and idolatry. If you don't know where Isaiah is, it's about this far in. If you go to the middle of your Bible and to the book of Psalms, you just turn a little bit to the right and you'll make your way to Isaiah. Isaiah, by a lot of people, is called the fifth gospel because even though it's written centuries before Jesus was born and died and rose from the dead, Isaiah is seeing forth that God is going to Uh, send a savior and he talks a lot about it but Isaiah also in the midst of that looking forward to the savior talks about the people's idolatry who are living among them and here he's going to give just a really really clear passage on idolatry so we're going to read 44 we're going to look at verse 9 then we're going to jump down to 12 and read nine verses and then if you're looking at a paper bible hang on to it keep it open if you're doing it on the phone just kind of keep your phone open so Isaiah 44 verse 9 now all who fashion idols are nothing 
and the things that they delight in don't profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Skipping down to verse 12. An ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers, works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he grows faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and he worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and he says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it. He prays to it and he says, Deliver me for you are my God. Three more verses. They know not nor do they discern For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they can understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I've eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? As I read that, a lot of that stands out to me. One, I, I think it's kind of like Isaiah's mocking the idea of idolatry. He's mocking the idea of someone taking a piece of wood or a piece of metal and carving it into something that we can then worship. But the thing that sticks out to me the most, honestly, as I read it, is that, that verse where it talks about he feeds on ashes. Because at the end of the day, kind of that's what idolatry is. In scriptural terms, like in, in the Roman Empire, when, they, when the Romans would think about, and most people living in the ancient Near East and across the Mediterranean uh, area, when they would think about idols, they didn't think about idols, they just thought about deities. And if this room were the Roman Empire, these people right here would have some deities and those back here might have some deities and these might here might have some deities and you guys here and those in the back far away would have some, they might be completely different. But the kind of the mantra of the day was, man, you worship yours, I'll worship mine. If yours are helpful for me, I'll pick them up. If they're not, you do your thing. Just mind your business. Don't don't be offensive. Don't, Don't judge me for mine. I won't judge you for yours. And they just had all of these deities. They didn't think of idols. These were just deities. They were lowercase g gods. And followers of Christ and even ancient Jews pop onto the uh, scene and they say, no, 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 there's only one God. And we can't have any other gods. And not only that, this God is so big and he's so good that we can't even reduce him down into an image. And so when they talked about other deities or when they talked about idols, they began to think of in terms, the word they would use was this idea of like phantom deities, like ghost gods, like mirages in the desert or little ghosts, something that like a mist, you would grab at these deities and they would never deliver. And so when Isaiah, hundreds of years before this, talks about they feed on ashes, that's, a, that's simply really what idolatry is. It's kind of feeding on ashes. It's thinking you're grabbing at something, you're eating something, you're experiencing something, only to find 
It wasn't that thing at all. And it didn't deliver at all. And so we have to see our idols for what they really are. We have to begin to see our idols for what they really are. I think, Ari, we might have a slide up for this, if you will. We have to see our idols for what they really are. Isaiah talks about how our idols are four different things right here in this passage. One, he talks about how they're man-made. If you're looking at verse 12, he says the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and he's working over the coals and he's taking some iron and he's forming it. The carpenter takes a piece of wood and he's forming it. Our idols, our functional deities, our phantom deities are man-made. Anything other than the creator who wants us to worship him that we begin to worship or idolize is the created. That's how they are. They're all man-made. The second thing that we see is they're distortions of good. If you looked at 14 through 16, it says he takes this piece of wood that's used to, to make food and it's used to keep warm and it's used for all of these good things and he begins to shape it into a deity. All of our little idols, our little functional saviors, these phantom deities, they're all distortions of a good thing. We're going to see that in a minute in a really, really tangible way. The third thing we see is that they're actually helpless. Like Isaiah mocks idolatry and he says, look, you, like you want these things to save you, but from the same piece of wood that you cut out this little deity, you're also using some wood to make your dinner. Like, it can't really save you. You understand that, right? You, it can't really save you. It's actually helpless. And then have a last, ultimately, he says, that at best these things are over-promising myths, and at worst they're destructive liars. We tend to see our idols, and I don't know what is like your Jesus plus blank. My Jesus plus blank, we won't get into that today right here. We may a little bit later, but I have several. The way I tend to think of them is that they overpromise and they underdeliver. They tend to overpromise and underdeliver, like all of these things. Like, have you ever thought, oh, we're gonna go on this vacation or we're gonna get this thing? And then it happens and you go, oh, I didn't do quite what I thought it would. They never do. They they overpromising, like they overpromise, they're overpromising myths. At worst, from their perspective, they're destructive liars. Deities, idols, they're destructive liars. Like anything that would seek to grab at our heart that is created and not the creator wants to destroy us. And so we have to understand that there are, and here's the trick, there are theological saviors. Like these would be the, this would be Jesus. And most of you in here today would say, oh, I follow Jesus. And Jesus wants to be our theological savior. And so if Jesus is your savior, if you would say, I'm a Christian today, we would go, oh, like he's my savior. He's, our, he's my theological savior. I believe Christ. The problem is for all of us, we also have these functional saviors. And these are the things that we would never say, I'm banking my eternity. I'm banking meaning in my life on these things. But we have these functionally, we would never say, oh, I worship my health. Oh, I worship my family. Oh, I worship my work. Oh, I worship politics. Or for me, probably the number one, the one that gets me is, oh, I worship myself. I would never say I worship myself theologically that I am the deity. But if you look at my life functionally, a lot of times I'm acting like I'm God. And I get mad when people don't bend to how I want things to go. Or you watch the news and 
you pick your news channel and it's funny right now, like you can watch either the one on the right or you can watch the one on the left. There's none right now in America that are down the middle. Like if you want the one down the middle, go watch the news from another country talking about our country. That's your best shot, right? So you can watch right now the ones on the left and man, they talk about how the sky is falling right now. Roe v. Wade has been overturned and things are bad. Racism's crazy. The world is burning. It's terrible. I mean, you can go watch the one on the right and they say the same thing. The world is burning and the world is falling apart right now because of all these different movements and wokeism and sexuality and LGBTQIA and the world's falling apart. And so both sides right now think the world is burning. And can I tell you why? Because when you make a functional deity out of the politics of your country and it doesn't deliver, this is what happens. That's what happens. Whenever we have a functional savior that's not the actual savior, we begin to think the world is burning. We get angry or disappointed every time. And like Isaiah talks about, these things overpromise, but then they aim to destroy. So here's the truth. Here's a couple of truths I want to share with you really quickly. One, tangible things will never satisfy existential longings. Tangible things will never satisfy existential longings. My wife, Natalie's back there. We've been married 18, almost 18 and a half years. There was a time in my life before we got married that I thought, man, if I can just get married, that's gonna solve my problems. And it didn't. I mean, I've created more problems for her than she's created for me, clearly. But it didn't. It didn't solve all my problems. Like, the things I struggle with, I still struggle with the things I need to surrender to Jesus. I still need to surrender to Jesus. Same thing with money. If money is gonna be my functional savior. There was a time in my life, I remember this one time, Natalie and I got our credit card bill and it had $2,000 on it. And like money scares me and not having it, but owing people scares me even more. And so we get our credit card bill and she could tell you, I can tell you exactly where we were standing when we opened that bill in our kitchen at 289 Harper Farms in Royston, Georgia. And I looked at that bill. This is how traumatic it was for me, right? And like, I wished we would have had elementary school kids at that age because I would have gotten one of those little, gro- those little brown paper bags that you give your kids to put their lunch in for school. And I would have started breathing heavy into it because I was like, $2,000, oh, no how are we gonna pay this bill what are we gonna have to like I'm panicking like absolutely panicked because it was a functional savior and and so there have been times where I thought if we just have this and we have no debt then we're gonna be okay and we've gotten to that place where we other than our home have no debt in our life and I can still feel just as insecure about money because it can't deliver the tangible things of life will never provide existential meaning and peace any good created thing that becomes a, becomes a bad sinful thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Any good created thing becomes a bad and destructive thing when it becomes an ultimate thing. Man, I, re- I remember bringing Noah, like I remember bringing Noah home from the hospital and, uh, and you guys are the closest in the room to experiencing this, you know, and, and you just hold that little kid and like you smell a baby's temples and if heaven doesn't smell like the temples of a baby, I don't know that I want to be there. Like, I feel like heaven is going to smell just like this part of a baby. And you bring that baby home from the hospital and you put it in this little, you know, that little carrier. And the baby's like this size and the carrier is like this. And you're bringing them in and you're thinking, man, 
I'm going to protect you and you're going to bring me so much meaning. And they can't deliver. Like I remember the first night, like putting Noah in his bed and we were so dumb as first time parents. And we prayed and we're like, Lord, we're just trusting you. We're going to get a good night's sleep and he's just going to rest because he's going to bring us so much joy. And his name literally means peaceful. And he was awesome. Just not that first night. He was not awesome. Like we laid there like 20 minutes and he's screaming. And like, do we get up? Do we not? The next morning we got like two hours sleep. I had to go to work. And it was just, it was a lot. And he could not deliver. And he's amazing. He's amazing. Both of my boys are amazing. But they cannot deliver. Anytime a created thing becomes a good created thing, becomes an ultimate thing, an idolatrous thing, then it becomes a destructive thing. It just can't, no one, no thing can carry the weight of that. And so here's a struggle with functional saviors that I see in our city. Winning at the what and the how of life, the tangible stuff of life, Winning at the how and the what, like how are we going to make it? How are, how are we going to live? Where are we going to buy a house? What are we going to do for a career? Winning at the how and the what of life does not and will never satisfy the why of life. There are people in this neighborhood that are crushing it in life. When our interns who led worship this morning, when they got here this summer, one thing that we made sure to tell them is like our neighborhood is overrun with idols. The problem is most of them look really good. Our, our city is overrun with idols. The problem is they look really attractive and like what most of America is trying to get to. They cannot deliver. These are functional saviors that can not save. And so winning at the how and the what of life will never satisfy the why. Only God can answer that. That's why we talked about this last week, that God has a best for everything in life. God has a best for everything in life. Everything that our city longs for is ultimately rooted in a desire, a misplaced desire for God's best when they're not seeking God. So whenever we miss God's best, we always experience brokenness. And so we walk around our city. I remember the other day I was walking uh, over to Tradesman with a friend of mine and we were walking through the Santander parking lot and there was a needle right there. And for the first time ever since I've lived here, we called 311 and had the person come and pick up the needle rather than pick it up ourselves. I've never had to do that. But we look and we see brokenness around us. Maybe sometimes it's something really tangible. I mean, to be really morbid and frank, a couple of months ago, one street over from our house, we had a neighbor who took his own life. And by all accounts, he was hyper successful. But what he was longing for was God's best. And what he was experiencing outside of God and the gospel was brokenness. And the reason for that is sin. Whenever we don't experience, when we experience brokenness and don't choose God's best, which we all do, we all do that. We experience brokenness and we try to trampoline out of our brokenness. And that effort is idolatry. That's asking some created thing to be God's best and it cannot do it. 
It cannot, absolutely will not do it. And so look with me at Isaiah 44. Let me read you the next two verses. Verses 21 and 22. Remember these things, O Jacob. Remember the, remember the craftsmen crafting these idols. Remember the carpenter and the smith who are taking these things and trying to form them and just how ludicrous it seems. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. Remember them, my people of faith. For you are my servant. I formed you. I formed you. You're my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. If our idols are like a mist, like ashes, like functional deities that we grab at and never get, the Lord says, I've taken your sins and I've wiped them away like they're a mist. Like God says, I will never grab at your sin and catch it. I've let it go. I've dealt with it. Return to me, he says, for I have redeemed you. So he tells us here that despite all those things going on with our idols, the Lord has formed us. We form our idols, but the Bible says God formed us. The Lord blots out our sin. Our idolatry can't minimize, our idolatry can't minimize our sin or take away our brokenness. But God says, I have a plan to deal with your brokenness and your sin. Our idolatry can, can't minimize it or cover it or distract it, but God has a plan to blot it out and turn it into a mist. And then we see in verse 22, the last part, the Lord delivers completely. God has a plan for idolatry. God has a plan for all of our little functional saviors. And here's the plan. If you were here last week, you saw it. The plan is the gospel It's that despite our brokenness and our idolatry, God knowing we couldn't work our way to him, he worked his way down to us and Christ came and died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father so that if we turn from our brokenness, what the Bible calls repent, and we trust Christ, we believe, then God will save us. And restore us to his best. God has a plan to wipe away our sins. To turn them into mist. But it's Jesus. And it's nothing else. What happens for a lot of us. Is we even think that our religion. Our going to church. Our praying. Our seeking to become good people. Becoming good neighbors. Doing nice things. Rescuing kittens from trees. And old ladies from the middle of the road. We think that this religion stuff will appease our brokenness, but it will never return us to God's best. Only Jesus in the gospel can do that. Man, that is good news. God has delivered us. Christ has delivered you, Christian. Or if you are not a follower of Christ today, Christ will deliver you from your idols, from sin, from death, from guilt, from condemnation, and from futility. All right, we've got a slide that's a pink. It's a quote. It's, mo- it's all pink, if you'd put it up there for me. This is a quote by Tim Keller. I'd love to read you really quickly. We think that idols, and this is where things turn, are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Like most of us in here wouldn't look and say, Oh, alcohol is going to save me. Oh, illegal drugs are going to save me. Oh, running a Ponzi scheme to defraud people of millions of dollars is going to save me. But we do say my family is going to provide ultimate meaning. 
if we can just get enough money in the bank that we can do da-da-da-da-da, then I'm gonna be good. If I can just work enough and get that promotion and get to here, then it's gonna be all right. That's the danger. It's not the destructive thing. It's actually the good thing that would promise to provide meaning but can't. I wanna share with you uh, what I would call the gods of Boston. I think we've got a slide up of this, Ari, if you would, the gods of Boston. Now, this, isn't, this is anecdotal, um, but I think it's kind of true, uh, what I'm going to share with you. And it comes from reading a lot of history when we moved uh, to Boston and continuing to read. It comes from reading the news uh, about our city. It comes from uh, just watching. <laughs> I mean, I think you're going to see these and go, yeah, I can see that. And it comes from uh, living in the age we live in. Some of this is not hyper-local. I mean, it comes from interviews. When we first moved here, we just, I would sit down with people and I would ask them nine questions about what it's like to live in, in this city and to live in this neighborhood. And I interviewed several people, a lot of people. And, uh, and one of the questions I would ask is, if, if Boston had a God other than God, what would it be? And people who didn't follow Jesus would answer this question for me. At the end, I would say, and is there anybody that you think I ought to meet? And they would give me a name and I would inevitably go meet that person and talk with that person. And these are five things that I would say would be the gods of Boston. Again, it's not an exhaustive list. And it's definitely not scientific. These are, but these are created good things. All of these things are created good things. All right, uh, Ari, if you'll go to that next one for me. Here they are. The three are kind of universal city, American, lowercase g deities, in my opinion. Tim Keller wrote a great book. Some of you have probably read it. If you haven't, I would recommend it. You can check it out from the BPL for free. It's called Counterfeit Gods, the Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. He talks about other ones, but those are the three main ones he talks about in this book. And so you'll see that I've listed the first three because I think that they're little lowercase d's of our deities of our city. Money, it's expensive to live here. We all know that. Sex, you can't turn on, I mean, that's kind of local, but that's also the culture we live in. Power, the longing for more of it. Promotions, climbing the ladder. This one I would say is pretty unique to Boston. My friend Drake Ritchie articulated this. Keller talks about in New York City uh, how success is one of the functional saviors of New York City. Uh, my friend Drake Ritchie, who actually lives in Charlestown, used to go to Redeemer, uh, would say, J.D., he told me uh, when we first moved here and we sat down, he said, I don't actually think that success is a deity for Boston as much as innovation. In Boston, people are constantly trying to learn something that's never been learned, invent something that's never been invented, win something that's never been won, do something that's never been done. The functional savior of people in Boston is innovation. And then the fifth one I would list is history. Now, I have three more, but... They won't all fit on here. And so you can see that this is just the beginning of what I would call sort of the gods of Boston. These are good in and of themselves. These are good things, right? Like, can we agree? It takes money to live. Sex is created by God. It's not bad. God blessed it and told people to do it often. Whenever I counsel couples for premarital counseling, one of the questions I ask them is, what is your view of sex? And because I'm a pastor, they start blushing and they're like, I'm not comfortable talking about that. And I'm like, well, we need to talk about it. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. You need to have lots of it because you're newlyweds and you're probably broke and it's free and you should do it a lot. And, uh, and they get a good laugh just like that and it breaks the tension of the room. Listen, sex is good. God made it, it's great. Power is fine. When handled correctly, power is great. The problem is we never handle it correctly. Innovation is wonderful. 
Listen, without innovation, there wouldn't be new technologies. We wouldn't have these mini computers in our pockets and we wouldn't have vaccines and medical treatments. History is wonderful. We can learn from history. It's great. In and of themselves, these are good things. Here's the thing. They don't tend to stay there. They don't tend to stay just like that. They tend to become ultimate things. All right, if you'll go to that next slide. And here's what happens when good things become ultimate things. When money stops being a good thing and becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes greed. And we see this. I was reading a, uh, an article the other day about the, the housing bubble and how it feels like it's beginning to not burst, but at least deflate in many cities in our country. And the article said this, said, you would have thought we would have learned the real estate and financial lessons of 07, 08, and 09. But we did not. The things that caused us problems then are about to cause us problems again. Because money doesn't, as a deity, as a functional deity, it doesn't stop at money. It always wants more. Sex is great. Left to its own, it becomes lust and immorality. When it's made a functional deity, it becomes lust and immorality. It's, it's mind-blowingly destructive. Lust and immorality function like drugs in that they live by the law of diminishing returns. And so the fruit of lust and immorality, pornography and broken sexuality, any form of sexuality that is less than God's best, has a law, it operates by the law of diminishing returns. And it will only crave more and more and lead to destruction. Power's great. Power can liberate people and organize things and get things done, but left alone, even in religious settings, power becomes abuse. We Christians see this as well as anybody in the secular realm. We see this. We feel this. That's why a lot of people have never stopped believing in God, but they've stopped believing in the church because of the abuse of power. Innovation is great. Left to its own, it becomes dissatisfaction. It becomes self-realization. It becomes a longing for utopia. And innovation will never bring us to God's best on its own. It's a functional deity that cannot deliver. It, trampoline, it seeks to trampoline out of brokenness, but it never brings us back to God's best. These are good things. They're good like a fire. Any of you have a fireplace? Fireplaces in Charlestown scare me to death. They're, fires are great in the fireplace. Our, our first place we lived in in Charlestown, uh, they had the, the previous tenants thought that fires were great also. And so they had had a fire in the fireplace. The problem was about three feet from the fireplace, there was a huge burn mark. Because at some point, the wood, which didn't have a screen around it, decided it wanted to make its way out of the fireplace. And apparently it made its way into the hardwood floors, but didn't burn the place down. Fire in the fireplace is great. Fire in the barrel where it's supposed to go is great. But when that good thing, fire, becomes an ultimate thing, it's like Miss O'Leary's cow in Chicago in 1871, taking the fire in the barrel or the bucket and kicking the fire over and burning down almost the entire city. When the fire of a good thing 
gets out of the intended place and it becomes an ultimate thing, a functional savior. There's carnage. And it's just so destructive. And the worst thing, the thing that kills me as your pastor is to watch people turn good things into ultimate things, thinking that they're going to return them to God's best and watch them destroy them. Uh, I'm not sure if this was Tim Keller or me. I'm going to say it was Tim Keller, unless it sounds dumb, and then it was me. Um, Idols don't always look idolatrous. Often they look good and beautiful and enviable, or sometimes they look American or Bostonian or whatever in this case. That's why we get these cultural mantras like greed is good, love is love. Or when I think about our city and the pride we feel in our city, I think about David Ortiz and this is our effing city. You remember that? Like these things become these cultural mantras where we ele- like elevate greed or we elevate ourselves or our city or we elevate love to something that it can never be. They can look good and beautiful and enviable. So we set them beside Jesus to see them for what they really are. We set the little piece of wood that the carpenter carved beside the Lord and we see it's just a piece of wood and half of it was even used to heat a fire to cook dinner. We set our functional saviors beside the actual savior. And we go, wow, what's wrong with me? How did I get this far away from Jesus who loves me and has a plan to rescue me that didn't involve me trying harder, but him laying down his life to get me? So let me share with you some gospel truths about these things, if we will. Ari, if you'll go to that next slide, but there it is right there. When, an ultimate, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, I wanna tell us that God can speak to it with his word. Hebrews 13, five regarding Money says, keep your life free from a love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Money's great, but it doesn't have to become ultimate because God knows what we need and will never leave us or forsake us. Immorality and sexuality. Let me read to you John 15, 13, Jesus is at the end of his life and he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. See, we've, we are being sold all the time, constantly, a myth that there's a functional deity called sex and love and they're so tethered together that they're one and the same. And if we have that, regardless of who or what we're attracted to, then we will have meaning. And Jesus says the greatest love is not sex and even marriage and that kind of romantic love. The greatest love is when a person would lay down his or her life for their friends. That's the greatest love. God's word speaks to the abuse of immorality when sex becomes a functional deity. Regarding power, when it becomes abuse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse Six says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We don't have to seek power so that at the proper time, he will exalt you. The way of Christ is to lay it down, is to say power's great. But what I do with my power is I lay it aside like Jesus who emptied himself of all power and glory and gave himself to serve others. We don't have to abuse 
The way of power is to serve others. This is the gospel. This is an upside down kingdom regarding dissatisfaction. Philippians chapter four says this. Paul's writing says, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. This is not just with innovation. Like this passage, not just speaking about money. I've learned to be content. It's in all things. I can be content in all things. He was writing this from jail. I know how to be brought low I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's this lust to create something that's never been created, make something never made, do something that's never been done, win something that's never been won. And God's word confronts that and says, no, you don't have to do that. You can do everything that God has laid out for you through his strength. It's when you try to do the things that aren't laid out for you that you will experience brokenness and a mess. And then regarding history and celebrating our history, whether it's sports uh, or uh, our own sort of national history or local history, Lamentations chapter 3 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I don't have to hope in what was and sort of have this pride or uh, local Boston pride or national pride or racial pride or any type of pride that comes with our history because the the Lord loves me and he's my portion and his mercy is new every single day. He's enough. God's enough. If I could tell you anything today, if you remember anything today or from this three weeks, just remember, God's enough. Jesus is enough. So what we've got to do, let me share this with you and we'll pray. What we've got to do is confront, Ari, if you'll go to that next one, these good things, these ultimate things, we confront them with the gospel value. Because everything that sin, every good thing that sin would distort and destroy and turn into a phantom deity the gospel has something to speak against it. And what the gospel would call us to is generosity when it comes to money. While the world is constantly pursuing more, the gospel would call, call us to generosity, to being a generous people who aren't constantly trying to save and get and gather and I've got to get more because what if the economy goes bad and what if things turn and Listen, like this year, the money that Natalie and I have put in our retirement, it has been a phantom deity. Like every month we put a little more in and every month we look and a little more comes out. And I literally go, did we just waste a lot of money this year? And we're not living by greed. We're trying to live by being good stewards who pay our bills, who save, who invest for the future and who enjoy our life and who give to what God's doing in the world. So I don't think that greed is running our life, but good stewardship is. But I can tell you that we invested a lot of money this year that was like a phantom deity. It's like a mist. What if it's God's people not calling you not to invest in retirement? We invest in retirement. I'm not calling you not to do all this stuff. Be a good steward. Pay your bills. Get out of debt. All of these things. But I think the Lord would have us be generous people to confront the greed of our culture and say there's a better way. That is not a functional savior. The second one, this idea of confronting the good of sex but the bad of lust and immorality with a biblical sexuality, a biblical and biblical community. 
So God has a best for everything. God has a best for every single thing, including our sexuality and our relationships. And I think one of the most compelling things we can do to combat the brokenness of making sex an ultimate thing is begin to live out God's best, which is a biblical sexuality and community. And if you want to talk about that more sometime, I would love to talk about it with you. I'm not going to dive into it. The, conf- the confrontation for power and abuse is humility. The confrontation for innovation and the constant dissatisfaction that comes with it when we idolize it is contentment and Christ-likeness. Being the most contented people in the world. Saying, if I never write a book, if I never make a scientific discovery, if, I, if my kids don't get college scholarships to go to some Ivy League school, if this never, if these great things that everybody's chasing never happen for me, God's got me. I want to be like Jesus. Having a diploma on my wall or a book that I wrote on my shelf does not define me. Christ defines me, so I'm pursuing him. And then finally, in, in light of, uh, and let me just say one more to that, one more gospel value would be excellence. The Lord would have us be excellent people. We do things with excellence. And then finally, regarding history and pride, the Lord would have us be wise. As we do these things, we become what the King James Version of the Bible in 1 Peter 2 calls God's people, peculiar people. We ought to be a peculiar people. We are, 2 Corinthians 5 says, we're ambassadors in this world. We represent a king who has a different kingdom, and that kingdom has a different constitution. It has a different bill of rights and it has a different setup and we represent him. And I want to, uh, Ari, we've got a slide for this one. If you'll go to this last slide. Gospeled people living gospel values may be our best witness in this city. Becoming gospeled people living gospel values, changed fruit because of a changed root. We have a different, we're on a different vine. We are different branches. We are in Christ. He's changing us from the inside out, helping us value what he values. Gospeled people living gospel values may be our best witness. So let me give you a couple of diagnostic questions and then we'll pray. Ari, will you throw these ones up there? They're the blue ones. I think you've got it. It may be next. I think we've got it. Is it in there? Nope. I might have taken them out. We won't ask the diagnostic questions. That's the Holy Spirit's way of telling me it's time to pray. Let me, uh, let me share this with you. In a city of greed, in a culture of greed, what would it look like for us if we lived the counter value of generosity? What would it say to our city if we were the most generous people in this city? In a culture of immorality, in a city where sex is often held as the highest thing, what would it look like if we lived the counter value of a biblical sexuality and biblical community In a culture of power, in a city of abuse, what would it look like if we lived a counter value of humility, radical humility towards one another and towards our neighborhood and our city? In a city of innovation and a culture of dissatisfaction, what would it look like if we lived the counter value of excellence and contentment and Christ-likeness? And in a culture where uh, history is held high and there we are a city of deep pride, what would it look like if we lived the counter value of biblical wisdom. I think it's our best witness. And I think God's got to begin to do the thing in us. And so next week, we're just going to talk about how we begin to uproot our idols and what we replace them with. Let me pray for us. Lord, I've never, uh, 
I've never wanted to become a worshiper in the religion of Jediism or the Prince Philip movement, but I have. Uh, and, I, and, I, and God, since age nine, I would actually even say that Jesus is my savior. But there have been seasons and moments where I have held on to lowercase g gods, little functional deities that actually just became like phantom deities that I never could grab at. And we think about this image in the scripture of the carpenter and the deity he makes. And God, we see that we live in a city where we're making these deities and we're trying to please them and appease them. And they cannot be pleased and appeased. They want to take over and become ultimate things. And so Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we don't have to provide our own rescue, but the rescue has been provided, that you are enough. You have a plan to cover our sin and you have a plan to give us meaning and hope and purpose. Lord, as your people for the Christians in the room, as your people, God, I pray that you're identifying the idols in our hearts, that your spirit is putting his thumb on things in our life good things that have become ultimate things. Lord, I pray that we're repenting of those things, even in the quietness of this moment. Lord, maybe for anybody in the room who's never given her or his life to you, they've even maybe been religious and they've tried to sort of parachute out of brokenness by religion. Lord, I pray that in the quietness of their hearts, in the quietness of this moment, that they would turn their lives over to you, that they would say, Jesus, I'm repenting, I'm turning, I'm coming to you, I'm believing the gospel that even though I'm dead in my sin, you have a plan for me because you love me and that love is exhibited at the cross. Lord, I pray that you would stir people's hearts. I thank you that it is not a church's job or a parent's job or a friend's job or a pastor's job to change a heart, but God, it is your job. You do the heavy lifting of salvation. So God, as you stir hearts today and in the days to come and in the years to come in this space and in our community, I pray that people would respond in faith and in obedience and trust. Lord, we love you. God, I, I, I deeply believe that the, 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 the best uh, living illustration for our city is not more churches. It's people who have been gospeled by the good news of Christ and are living out gospel values, becoming the winsome people that our city needs to see. Lord, help us be that people. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen.